Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 266 with my guest Don Howell. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a therapist's office. I'm not a doctor. I'm a jackass, in fact, and it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. That's also the Twitter handle you can follow me at, mentalpod. But go to the website. We've got a forum you can join and post in. Uh, we've got blogs you can read, uh, surveys you can fill out. Maybe we'll read one of your surveys on the on the podcast. And you can also support the show financially uh, at the website as well by buying a t-shirt, a coffee mug, uh, maybe uh, making a PayPal donation, whatever. So go check it out. Um, I was going to read a couple of... Uh, Surveys. These are uh, struggle in a sentence surveys. And this first one is filled out by a woman who calls herself independent, indishmendent, um, about uh, being a sex addict. She writes, I think I want to fuck like a porn star as long as I can keep my shirt on and the lights off. About having codependency, she writes, the more you pull away, the more I need to compensate by loving you more. And about experiencing uh, racial bias, she writes, please stop telling me that you have yellow fever like it's a compliment. It has to be awful to hear that. Um, This is filled out by Ian, who writes about his bulimia. It's knowing you have one last chance to fix your mistake. Metairie writes about her depression. Like someone pulled a plug out of me and everything is draining away. Not just my feelings of well-being, but my motivation, my emotional intelligence, my faith in myself, my belief that I'm a good person. I believe all my worst reviews. Oh boy, isn't that true? That's a great one. Thank you for that. Um, 
This is filled out by a guy who calls himself drug addict trying to fill the emptiness inside me. Uh, gee, I wonder what his issues are. <laughs> um, about his anger issues, he writes, Sometimes I feel like it is the only emotion I have. Everything else is fake. A face I put in to please the world. And a snapshot from his life, he writes, Hiding in my bedroom, using cocaine, pretending to be asleep. Hiding from my family. My kids. Daddy's always sleeping, but really, I'm geeked out, hiding, being alone. Cocaine addiction is one lonely fucking place uh, to be. And um, yeah, you really know when when uh, the cocaine addiction is going off the rails is when you're using coke by yourself uh, in secret. That's definitely a, a clue, but I hope you get some help. I hope you reach out. Uh, this was filled out by a woman who calls herself living the dream and about uh, her mom issues. She writes, you've taught me how to be fearful, second guess myself into stagnation, lie, start whispering campaigns about family members, pretend those same family members are the best thing that ever, uh, pretend those same family members are the best thing ever when they're in the room and how to doubt every thought I have. And you're right. When I comment on the beautiful red-winged blackbird I haven't seen in a while, I should also think about what disease it carries. Oh, man, does your mom found sound like a handful. Um, and I heard this great quote at my uh, my support group meeting tonight, and uh, and I asked the, the guy's uh, name was Sean, and I said, can I, can I use that? Uh, can I share that? And he said, absolutely. He said... Um, when he was talking about depression, particularly when he was in his addiction, uh, he said, I feared death less than I feared Mondays. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness. Is convincing myself. I'm so alone. Why. Hypervigilance. I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. Then you just garbage move it from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with Don Howell, who, uh, first of all, I want to thank our listener, Whitney, who uh, recommended Don as a, as a guest. Don, you're a semi-retired uh, police officer who, how would you describe your uh, area of expertise and what you like to go and speak on? What I've been fortunate enough to do was for oh, the majority of my career, 25, 30 years or so, out of 42 years, uh, I was uh, assigned as a detective working sexually motivated crimes. It's kind of an assignment I kind of fell into. I was the child abuse detective, child molest detective, uh, adult sex crimes detective kind of thing. And I really found it rather fascinating. So for 25 years, I worked that assignment. That's what I did. And it's 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 really been a, a, a wonderful thing to do. People think sex crimes are kind of yucky and awful and whatever. Uh, but I found them fascinating. 
was really fortunate to fall into it. And my city allowed me to stay there. And as long as I handled all that stuff, they didn't care. You know, as long as I, you know, it was like, if he's going to handle all that messy stuff and just get it done right and deal with social services, deal with the courts, get everything done, we don't care what he does. Christmas shopping in July, that's fine. He can go do that. He can do whatever he wants as long as he handles all this stuff for us. And I was happy to do it. And it was a tremendous education for me. I went to tons of schools and found all kinds of things about sex offenders and then actually was able to apply it to my my caseload. Which is where you really learn how to how to how to make things work, and they just let me stay there, and so I was went to all the theoretical schools and then when was you able mean, to apply it. When you mean they allowed you to stay there as opposed to what? Most what generally happens in in police departments is somebody is looking to become a detective, and so they find an opening in the detective bureau, which is oftentimes in the juvenile department or in sex crimes or in petty theft or something. It's kind of like your introductory into law into, places where people don't want to stay. Right, right. And so you get in, you get into that assignment, and you wait for something to open up in robbery or homicide or fraud or wherever you want to go, and then you go to that position, and then the new one opens up a lot. So oftentimes, a sex crime detective may only be there 18 months, two years, before he goes on to something else. And that's not enough time to learn that assignment. It takes a long, long time to learn it. It would seem to me to be one of the ones where you would need the most time because you're dealing with the deepest, darkest, most complex part of people's brains. Well, absolutely. And and people don't understand that, that sex crimes, this will sound real simplistic, but sex crimes have are motivated for a sexual reason as opposed to money or revenge or drugs or gangs, which is what mostly what we see. This has an entirely different motivation. There's no profit in it. There's no, you know, I'm going to rob the bank to get money to buy drugs. There's none of that, okay? It has a really specific intent. And to make it work for you, you have to understand that intent. You have to understand what makes these people uh, tick the way they do, which helps you when you're interviewing your victims and your suspects. Now you know, okay, the behavior behind this caused them to do this. And so if I know how how that works then i can what what the victim is telling me makes a whole lot more sense and i know how to go after the bad guy when i catch him yeah what his payoff is and then what his signature is well signature yeah signature is a, is a legal term okay which, which i don't really truly understand maybe no one really understands because honestly but yeah what what makes him work and what his underlying fantasy is yeah. if you can sort of see the fantasy uh, and then you sort of put them into general categories, and, and you just go after them that way. And it becomes real easy. After a while, you, you just work it. Yeah. Uh, that's why they let me stay there, because I, I figured out how to work it. And uh, it was really, really a good deal for me. Um, is John Douglas a figure in your education? Well, I know he, I know of him. Uh, him, Ken Lanning, or Hazelwood, they're like the gurus of of uh, behavioral science stuff. I actually predate them. I should go back to a guy named uh, uh, Bob Morneau who predates the behavioral science unit, but okay. he was the guy who understood sex offenders. And he taught at my police academy in 1973. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I took classes from him later when he retired from the bureau. And he was sort of the the forerunner of all this concept that we have to understand this behavior. And he came up with a lot of really good ideas. Some of them really didn't pan out. But it was okay because it still got you going down the right road, and mm-hmm. you still once you go going down the right road, start thinking like sex offenders, thinking like what beha- how how people behave, and realizing that consensual behavior is not what you think it is. There's a, people do a lot of weird things consensually, and what Bob taught me was that don't don't work your personal history or what you were taught is normal. Work the law. 
If it's not illegal, don't worry about it. You know, they, they, just that kind of stuff. It's so funny. I tell my listeners that yeah. all the time. I say, you know, there's no unhealthy fantasy. There are just healthy or unhealthy ways of right. of expressing it. Uh, and does it consume you? Does it, does it cause a negative thing in your life? Then after Bob Murnau, you got Ken Lanning or Hazelwood, who are the guys I've been stealing material from from decades. And John Douglas, of course, he's a big author kind of a guy. Uh, and and the new ones in the BAU, they're really, really wonderful people. Like, I can still call them. You can call the public knows this, but in a law enforcement point of view, you can just call the BAU, the behavioral analysis unit, and just ask them a question. And they'll talk to you. And they'll tell them, this is what I got, and this is what they'll tell you, give you their opinion. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're not. But it is kind of a crapshoot because you're dealing with, with the human behavior, which was the fascinating part of it for me to say, okay, how, does, how are we going to make this guy work? How can I, how can I work him, more importantly? Yeah. One of the most fascinating books I ever read was Mind Hunter by, uh, by John Douglas. And, and I was so fascinated and chilled by it that we put a security system in our house after yeah. I, after I yeah. finished it. I was like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. there are some seriously, seriously mm-hmm. scary people uh, out there uh, and, and brilliantly. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the Mind Hunter, and there's the one called The Evil That Men Do uh, by Roy Hazelwood, which is another sort of uh, history of his, uh, the, the weirdos he's investigated kind of stuff. There's some really brilliant people out there who are really scary. And I don't know how those two get together. Nobody really knows how those two. In in my city, Rodney Alcala uh, is a the scary guy. We have I, genius IQ, off the chart genius IQ. You're talking about a perpetrator or an author? Uh, oh, well, probably not that perpetrator. He's in, oh, okay. he's on death row for the third time. Okay. Um, but a serial killer, absolutely brilliant and absolute stone cold psychopathic sociopathic killer. Absolutely serial killer from the very beginning. He's a long history of, of sexual stuff. Uh, and you look at, I've sat across the table from these people and you look in their eyes and there's no human being in there. And it's kind of scary to go, okay, how did that guy get that way? I don't, I don't know. Is it, is it genetics? Is it nurture nature? I, I have no idea. That's but, one of the things that yeah. really fasc- fascinates me in, in, in uh, uh, getting to do this podcast is the relationship between trauma and, and behavior. And uh, from what I've begun to read about psychopathy, there are some people, they say, that, that where they believe psychopathy might be a, a, a genetic uh, thing. Do you, do you believe that? <laughs> yes, I do, actually. I, I think that there's a combination of a genetic predisposition towards being sociopathic which sets the stage for you to become anything from a window peeper to a serial killer, depending on what where your level ends up at. And then there's some sort of behavioral component where you learn to eroticize peeping in windows, torturing people, uh, bondage, pain and pleasure, rape, you know, exposing yourself, whatever it is. And what that mechanism, what, how do we learn things like that? I don't know how we do it. I don't think anyone knows why we would learn that as opposed to something more healthy. Hmm. But if you go back to the old, uh, I'm really dating myself here, but uh, the old detective magazines you used to see them in the drugstores mm. where they always had the uh, the cover photo was of a partially clad woman uh, with a look of fear on her face and her hands are tied and she's wearing almost nothing and there's a guy who's got a knife through her throat. Well, people would look at that, young men would look at that, and some would become aroused by the skin that was showing, some by the lingerie, some by the look of fear, some by the way the ropes were tied, some by the knife. And you go, why do some become attracted to one to the other? And so you theoretically end up with people who are into bondage, perhaps, or into they become um, have the ability to eroticize 
power and control. They eroticize violence. And how does that happen? How do we learn that as opposed to something that is more socially acceptable? I don't know. I don't think anyone knows for sure. And how is it that some of them can contain it in a healthy role-playing way with a consensual partner and some can turn it into a weapon to use against innocent people? Absolutely. And, and, and we'll tell the women out there a secret that they don't know, okay? All men have some sort of paraphilic behavior. What do you mean when you say paraphilic? A paraphilic is a, something, a fetish, something that they like. Okay. It could be uh, long hair, short hair, tall women, skinny women, you know, big rear ends, skinny rear ends, big breasts, little breasts, whatever it is. Uh, they have something that they prefer. It doesn't mean it's overwhelming. Okay, it can be at a very, very low level, not a big deal. And guys in the locker room know that of each other. Okay, guys will talk about, oh, I like this one, that one, whatever kind of thing. And it doesn't mean it's overpowering. For most men, it's just kind of like, okay. You know, that's what I would prefer, but it doesn't mean I won't go over here either. Mm -hmm. It's just fine. But occasionally you get someone, it's relatively rare, but occasionally you get someone who becomes so fixated on that paraphilic behavior, whatever it might be, that it becomes overwhelming and interferes with their life. Now you got a problem. Instead of having a like mild, moderate, and severe paraphilias, when you get to the severe level where you're a toe sucker mm-hmm. or you're stealing dirty diapers and smearing the stuff all over you because the the texture and the odor arouses you. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Okay, that's a problem for you. It may not be a, a a legal problem for you, but if it starts interfering with your life, mm-hmm. where you can't have a relationship with anybody because you have to have poopy diapers all around, yeah, that's a real problem for you. And how do you get there? That's a tough one, you know. And it sounds very similar, really, to um, recreational drug use or drinking. It's you know, it's sometimes people. I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, and sometimes people will say to me, "How do I know if I'm drinking too much?" And the first thing I say is, "Is it interfering with your life? And, you know, right. are you making choices where you're choosing that over paying Correct. rent, or you know, you're right, absolutely." And and as it becomes so overpowering. That again, you have no control over it. And then you talk about the, the, the diaper stuff, okay? There, there's a whole underground society of diaper people. We had a guest on did, who, you have diaper who has a diaper. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Infantilism? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I did an undercover uh, thing with them at one time just to collect information about how they were thinking, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where we just sort of joined them and signed up just to read their material. And you know, infantilism in and of itself is not illegal. Uh, and some people dabble, and some are just so enamored in it they can't. That's all they're dealing with. Actually, they're 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 addicted to it, kind of thing. But there's so many other similar paraphilias out there where it's nasty stuff. You know, again, people are cutting their flesh, or cutting other people's flesh, mm-hmm. or cutting off body parts, or hanging weights from their genitals, or. I don't know, whatever torture stuff that they, they, the pain and pleasure people where there's this fine line between what's painful and what's not. And you know, I've had the opportunity to talk to them. It's really fascinating. Instead of just reading about them, I get to go talk to them. It's, it's, it's great stuff. So yeah. your interest in the, the infantilism paraphilia was, uh, uh, educational, not, not that you thought that they, they were a danger. Well, what happened was, a woman called a woman in her eighties calls up and says that her boss kept wanting him or wanting her to breastfeed him or to nurse him. She's in her eighties, he's in his forties. And he had this he was an infantilism guy and she kept saying no, 
Uh, and finally, he got to the point to where she had to quit her job. And so when she left, she took all of his infantilism material with her to go to her lawyer and say, this guy is, has this fetish, and so he should sue him for unlawful termination kind of stuff. And so she, all that information came to us because it was in my city. And so I got looking at it. At that time, we were this is before the Internet. And so we were writing letters to potential child molesters and see if they would correspond with us. So I was looking at this and saying, okay, people have these overwhelming paraphilias usually have four. They don't have one dominant and three or four subordinate ones. So is it possible that somebody who's into infantilism is also into molesting children? Is that a possibility? And so I entered that world just to, just to start corresponding with them and seeing if, if that was possible. It got problematic because everybody was a baby. I was I was baby Don, and everybody else was baby this. You couldn't tell if they're talking about real babies or not, you know. And mm-hmm. so after a while, I gave up and and pretty much realized that infantilism in and of itself, they're they're not. It's not it has illegal. Nothing, it has nothing yeah. to do with child molest. Absolutely nothing with child molest. Yeah. Absolutely nothing at all. And so we got out of it from that uh, point of view. But again, it was a fascinating study of how these people get that way. And you go, okay, so how if they've learned to eroticize peeing and pooping. Uh, yeah. in their pants and having somebody change them. Can someone else also eroticize violence mm-hmm. uh, and power and control over somebody else to the point that it becomes overwhelming and they're out kidnapping people off the street or breaking into yeah. homes, that kind of stuff. You know, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic to see how the brain can work. So what are some uh, things that when you go and you speak uh, to people, uh, go to speak to groups, what are some of the themes that you cover and what are some things things that you would like to uh, share with us, particularly uh, where you have a case in point um, where you can elaborate, you can show us a real life example of the thing you'd like to educate us on? Well, the one that irritates me no end, okay, is the concept of pedophilia. Okay, everybody thinks they know what a pedophile is. No, most people don't don't have a clue what it is. And we have a society that wants to label something. We think once we label it, we're safe from it. And that's really not the case, okay? Because you put a label on it doesn't mean you're safe from it at all. But we like to t- think about anyone who molests children is a pedophile. No. The truth is pedophilia is really pretty rare to have someone who is truly hardwired to have a true sexual preference, preference, for pre-puberty children, preference pre-puberty, is relatively rare stuff. You have to contrast that to someone who can perform with any victim of opportunity. There's your child molester's performance opportunity. There's the mass, vast majority of them. Now, a pedophile may have a lot of victims during his lifetime because that's his sexual preference. But when you talk about numbers of offenders, the people who can perform with any victim of opportunity outnumber them by tens and tens and tens and tens of times, okay? So you hear a case of a child kidnapped off the street, you know, eight-year-old, five-year-old, whatever, kidnapped off the street and molested and, you know, thrown out of the car and found murdered in the canyon. That's not pedophilia, folks. That's your, that's a, that's a rapist. Okay. We need to look at rapists, not at child molesters. They're they're very different categories, very different things. So I needed to to learn that. I was something I, Mm. you know, I learned over time. Now, what if that person was only targeting five-year-olds? Then would that person be a pedophile? Or were they excluded from being a pedophile because they had also raped adults? No. The answer is no. Okay. Uh, just because they're grabbing five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven, eight-year-olds, again, it's victims of opportunities. You have a lot of other dynamics going on here. You have um, – there was a TV uh, show on a while back uh, where they were catching predators, okay, sexual predators. Mm-hmm. Great, great show. Not one pedophile among those people. 
not one of the bad. I watched all of them. They were great. Not one pedophile. What you had was people who, some of them were socially or morally indiscriminate, who just figured, what the hey, I, if I can get away with it, I will. But a lot of them had insecurities. They had performance anxiety issues. And so they were seeking out a sexual partner who could not judge their sexual prowess or sexual experience. So you do that by finding a child or uh, someone in a senior, senior living center or a nun. Those are all the same population to them. They're safe population uh, group for the offender because those people cannot judge their sexual abilities or their sexual experience, in theory. According, they, they've in, never been with a good nun. Well, that's true. That's <laughs> true. And, and they don't really realize that grandma, <laughs> even though grandma's in her 90s, she was grandma's probably... Grandma's been around. She was been around. That's, she was you know, a flapper in the yeah, 20s. She was, yeah. She, uh, and then they forget that. But in the mind of the offender... Because we don't yes. think of grandma as being you know, sexually active or sexually mm-hmm. promiscuous or whatever. In their mind, it's a safe victim. Yeah. So if you talk to these people, if you talk to them online, they're really pretty honest. They'll email uh, somebody and say, have you ever seen one of these before? And if the girl goes, yeah, I've seen a lot of them. And then the guy goes, ah, I'm out of here. If, they, if the girl says, oh, or boy, if the girl says, mm-hmm. oh, no, what is that? What does it do? Then they feel safe. They don't have the uh, performance anxiety issues. And so they, they they go after that person. If you take that one step further to eroticizing control and power over somebody and add in the performance anxiety, then you have someone who's always kidnapping five, six, seven, eight-year-olds. doesn't necessarily mean that's his sexual preference. It just means that he has a combination of, paraf- of, of, of issues here. He's wow. learned to eroticize violence, plus he has uh, performance anxiety issues. Okay, So I need to know that because I'm going to go look at a population of offenders. I need to know what he's doing. And the victim can kind of tell you, what, if you interview them correctly, what was said, what would happen. Is the guy giving me um, a definition of a rapist, or is he talking about pedophilia? Now, pedophilia, they want they want to date and have a relationship with somebody. It's not a hit-and-run relationship with them. And so if someone's grabbing a kid off the street and raping them, kicking them out of the car, that's not a pedophile. That's not going to happen. That's not what they want. They want to date, seduce have a long-term relationship with somebody. So almost by definition, if somebody's grabbing kids off the street or breaking into the houses and grabbing them, it's probably not a pedophile. I mean, you're 99% sure it's not going to be a pedophile. Some other type of sex offender, yeah. So what happens is you have to watch your city. And if it's been kind of quiet for a while, all of a sudden you got sex crimes popping up all over the place. Could be the same guy who's acting out, you know, five year old over here, fifty year old over there, you know, whatever victim of opportunity stuff. You have to say maybe these are all the same person or maybe not. So you have to look real closely what at what the uh, the victim tells you. That's why victim interviewing is so important. And you need to get into the dialogue. What happened? What did the guy say? Did they have trouble maintaining an erection. What did he do to get over that? Uh, mm-hmm. What did he have you say? Do stand? You know, what what fantasy is he reeling off in his head? And if, which is more important than the actual sexual events to me you know one of the uh surveys that we have on our website is called the shame and secrets survey and people uh list traumas that have happened to them in life and then what their most powerful sexual fantasies are and it has been so educational uh to me seeing the relationship uh, oftentimes between uh traumas from their early lives or even adolescent lives and the thing that does it for them uh, sexually, you know, not to say that, you know, this A always leads to B, but there's a you see a pattern there that is, uh, to me, unmistakable and endlessly uh, fascinating uh, to me. I would like to look at that because you have, have people who will start a behavior to satisfy an immediate need and then it becomes a habit. Mm-hmm. And they don't really, it doesn't satisfy the need anymore, but it's become such a habit that's all they know. Uh, 
to get back to the the catching predators show, mm-hmm. uh, one of the people they arrested shows up to meet the girl with a carton of Cool Whip. Okay, I I almost fell on the floor laughing because I knew what he had, why that why that was important to him, because if you stick your let's say your finger in the Cool Whip, uh-huh. your cat will lick your finger, right? That was his knowledge of sexual activity. So he brought the Cool Whip to the girl, thinking that if I dip my quote-unquote finger in it, then this is all I know about sexuality. Okay, so you have sort of a sad character here. Again, someone who, who doesn't really want to have sex with children, but that's but he's just intimidated by adults. And he adds in the only element he knows. Yeah. And so when you get to the shame, this, this trauma, shame, and whatever, at some point they came up with a behavior to help overcome the trauma, and then they, it just sort of stuck with them. Yeah. And so I think that's probably where they're, where you're going with any sort of mental health issues. Now, let's just break that chain here and get you out of that mm-hmm. uh, so you can get onto something that's healthier for you, you know. Um, so give me some, um, well, the other, the other thing that I, that I noticed too, is, is it seems to me that some of people's sexual fantasies are a way of kind of getting into a time machine and going back to that source of trauma, but having control over it, uh, in, in a, if not the event, some aspect of the, of the event. Um, that's, that's my dime store opinion on, uh. In a therapeutic setting, you might be able to do that. You might be able to rewrite history, okay, mm-hmm. go back and say, okay, let's just change this element and kind of make mm-hmm. it better for you. I, in a therapeutic situation, I think that would be okay. I, I don't do therapy. I'd probably fail at it. Uh, as a therapist or the patient? A, well, probably both. Client. Probably yeah. both, yeah. Okay. Probably both, yeah. Uh, but I probably tried to treat myself, and that's just horrible. Uh, what you would do, what, you, what I see in, in my business is you see the acting out of fantasy is a way to balance the emotional teeter-totter in your head. Mm-hmm. If you're stable, if the rapist is, is stable, then he's an average everyday guy. But if something throws him out of whack, you know, he loses his job, his dog runs away, his wife leaves him, whatever, and the emotional balance beam starts to tilt, he will start to fantasize about controlling someone uh, raping someone, peeping in the window, whatever, in order to restabilize. And the fantasy will normally do that. You know, 99 times out of 100, the fantasy stabilizes them. We get uh, stories from women saying, the guy followed me on the freeway for miles and miles and miles. And we pull him over, and he's got a little, uh, like, overnight bag with him, and in there's duct tape and a blindfold and a gun, a toy gun, a knife, and all the things he would need is his little rape kit to capture someone. To him, that's the way he, he's using that. I have my tools with me. I could rape that woman if I wanted to, and that helps him rebalance his emotional uh, balance beam in his head. Most of the time for them, it works out. And that's the, all they need is just to have the that's kit. That's all they need. The kit or the fantasy or whatever it is, yeah. the fantasy is very, very powerful. And they can fantasize and masturbate, fantasize and masturbate to help them you know, stabilize this balance beam in their head. When they go more out of whack for some reason, they're not just a little out of tilt, they're way out of tilt. Now we got a problem because now they're going to set the fantasy into reality and nothing's going to stop them. Mm-hmm. They're going to focus in on whoever they find, any victim of opportunity, and that's who they're going to grab. Mm-hmm. If it's a five-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 50-year-old, whatever it is, that's who they're going to act out against. And we can actually see the fantasy as it kind of, kind of um, improves, if you will, over time as it kind of refines itself over time. And we can tell by the way that fantasy acts out how long he's been thinking about it. You know, if it's been a long, long time, if he's an exper- if he's done this before, or if it's the first time he's acting it out, you can see by the way it's polished up uh, to, to see how it's going to work. The pre-plan is, is, is always perfect. The reality is not. 
which gets me into a uh, one of my ideas, one of my theories, what I call anti-logic. You always look for the anti-logic, the illogical behavior in the event itself. And it, a lot of cops pass that over as being, oh, I don't want to write about that because it sounds stupid. We need to know that because it tells me where the guy's fantasy is at and what's, what hurdle did he have to overcome or how, how did he stumble during the middle of the assault. So you start to see these behaviors and and it tells you, yeah, this is that type of offender. Okay, you still need a fingerprint or if somebody else mm-hmm. catch him somehow. But come interview time, you now know how he's thinking and it makes it a lot easier to get into his head and say, okay, tell me what really happened here and you know when he's BSing you and you know whatever. Because like I say, they're very smart, very manipulative people and they'll try to outsmart you. I've had them come in thinking, oh, I can outsmart that cop. Do you often mm-hmm. um, try to play to their ego uh, to get them to uh, get their defense down or to get them to reveal uh, some part of themselves? You don't play to their ego. You play to their fantasy, which may be the same thing. Maybe, okay. maybe it's the same thing. But if you have an idea of what it is that's that's motivating them, then you play to it. Uh, and give you, me give me a real life example of this if you can if you can think of one. Okay, <laughs> one hundred thousand. Uh, <laughs> we had a guy in custody who allegedly uh, had molested his girlfriend's daughter who was like nine or ten and some of her girlfriends during like a rainy day he's going to babysit the kids play monopoly that kind of stuff with them and the molest was as they're playing monopoly or the board games or whatever uh he exposes himself to the kids and the kids touch him masturbating that kind of stuff okay so we get talking to him and there were some other priors, you know, some some speculation. He molested his own daughter at some point, but no no convictions kind of thing. So we're seeing this as a pattern. You know, he's gone out of whack a couple of times. No pedophilia because there's no dating relationship here. He's not acting like a child. So we have is a socially indiscriminate or a, a low-end rapist as far as the amount of force used. So as we get talking to him, he gets real angry. And what will happen is, is they get angry, they'll just stop talking. So we stopped the interview and sent him down to the jail and said, if you want to talk to us a little bit later, we'll gladly come down and talk to you because you're in charge. Okay. We'll glad you just have the jailer call us up and we'll come down and we'll talk to you again if you want to tell us something. Okay. Again, we put him in charge because he has an ego need. He needs to be in charge. He doesn't do well with authority, but he wants to be our equal. About an hour later, he calls up and says, I want to tell you, I want to call, I want to want to talk to you, and I want to tell you five things. Five, only five. Don't ask for six, only five. Okay, uh, f- hey, I'll be happy with five. We're going to bring him back up, get him in the interview room. And he starts to tell us about how uh, I was playing with these girls, and, and my girlfriend's daughter, she's forced me to show them show myself to her in the past i'll get out of the shower she'll sneak in and want to see me naked and she'll want to see my thing and and whatever and she just keeps she just keeps uh, uh forcing me to do this and she just kept pestering me and pestering me and pestering me and finally i just well i just finally pulled my 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 uh my, my sweatpants down and let him look at it okay knowing the behavior we, we look at him and go why those little vexens? How dare they do that to you? Oh, right. You okay. just play into because his in fantasy. His, because in his mind, he's what's called a regressed offender. And in his mind, he sees he sees the children as the sexual aggressors and himself as the victim. So knowing that this is what he, he truly believes. He that. believes That's it. Not, he's not spinning this. No, to, no. To, he, he believes it. He believes it. He, wow. This is his thing. And so we go, okay, why those? How, how dare those girls do that to you? And at that point, it's like a fish on a line. We got him. You know, yeah. he's going, and he told us more than five things. You know, he t- he copped out to the whole thing. Yeah, they did this, this one did this, and blah, da 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 da. Because we understood him, and I do understand him. I'm not, I'm not, I understand his mentality. I don't agree with it, but.
but I understand what he's saying. He's saying is in his mentality, uh, he's this regressive bender. It used to be called regressed pedophilia, but it's more of a rapist kind of thing. He sees him. He sees the children as the sexual aggressors. And so if we play that card with him, assuming we know that's what he's doing, we're likely to get him to talk to us about what happened, which is wow. how we do it. Yeah. Wow. And and so, that, like I said, no pedophilia there. If he's a pedophile, he would have a long-term relationship. He, he would be acting as a child. He, him and the kids would be sneaking into the movies together. They'd be, he'd, he'd have all the music and the dress and the, and the jargon that the kids use. He would know all that kind of stuff. He'd be a peer, a psychological peer with them. There's none of that at all. There's no pedophilia here at all. What it was, it was one of the other categories yeah. of people who might uh, assault children. Uh, there, there's uh, very few people are also f- uh, familiar with the term. Uh, I, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Hebophile, 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 hebophile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, tell our listeners what what that is. Well, pedophilia again to contrast it is someone who has a sexual preference for pre-puberty children. Mm. The hebophilia or phoebophilia, I use both of them. Uh, is someone who has a sexual presence, sexual preference for post-puberty children. Now, hebephilia has a sexual preference for post-puberty females. Phoebephilia, a sexual preference for post-puberty males. They, what happens is pedophilia, they seem to see children as children, both male and female. They don't make a, a gender distinction. They may molest boys more than girls because it's easier to take the neighborhood boys camping than the neighborhood girls camping. But it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a mechanical thing, not so much a preference thing. When they get post-puberty, they, the offenders seem to split off to, I prefer post-puberty girls or post-puberty boys, one or the other. Now, you, you'd have some crossover, but generally they, they, they split out. And so what you have, again, if you have somebody who is, um, he's 20 years old and he has a 15-year-old girlfriend. When he's 30 years old, he still has a 15-year-old girlfriend. When he's 40, he still has a 15-year-old girlfriend. Okay, you're talking about somebody who has hebophilia, who is someone who has a sexual preference for post-puberty girls. The biggest victim population out there are those offenders who have a sexual preference for post-puberty boys. Boys are the biggest target population out there for sexual molest that we have, and it is a big secret in America. We don't want to believe it, and it's a big problem out there. Talk more about that, if you would. Well, when our guys go undercover and they do the Internet stuff, they pose as a teenage boy more often than girls and because the, it's just a target-rich environment. They get more hits on the on being a boy scenario than a girl scenario. But it isn't something America wants to face. A few years ago, I wouldn't face that female school teachers might molest boys, might have sex mm-hmm. with their, their students. Now that's starting to come out of the closet kind of a thing. It's becoming more popular. And the attitude is so angering. They, when I read the comment boards, they want to give the 14-year-old boy a high five. Yeah, and, and look, I, isn't and he lucky? It, yeah, no. That's where your serial killers are made, but... Uh, a lot of times, but what we have then on the boys. What do you mean, the person that's that's doing it, or the the person that's experiencing it? If you talk to 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 not all, but some serial killer types or molester types, they were sexually assaulted or victimized at some point in their life by a female, and what they're doing is they're acting out against other females. They're trying to target that woman who harmed them. Mm. Okay, so you look at the, you know, the more bizarre ones. They have that in their history: mom, stepmom, somebody like that molested mm. them. Our society likes to think that a 14-year-old boy making it with the 30-year-old school teacher or something is a passage in the in, in the manhood. Oftentimes, it's a passage in the terror. Yeah, they don't know what to do. 
they don't know what's happening to them, and it's a sexual experience way beyond their years. They need to be making out with another 13-year-old and kind of fumbling mm-hmm. their way around and learning as they go, as opposed to hitting you know, this woman who's got all this sexual experience, and now they're like in the fast lane all of a sudden. You know, that, That's not a healthy thing for them. Their brain isn't ready for it. Occasionally, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, there's always that maybe person out there, but it's usually a passage into terror. And if you talk to, to these people like I have, they go, yeah, it wasn't a fun thing. I, you know, mm-hmm. I bought my body functioned because, you know, boys will get an erection whenever the wind blows, you know, um, so their body functions, they assume that that means this is something they wanted, but it isn't necessarily uh, true. Well, you know, as the, as the listeners to this podcast, uh, know the, re- the regular listeners, uh, I'm a, a an incest survivor. It was covert incest and my abuser was my mom and for uh years i couldn't see how much anger i had at at women and how much i objectified them and only until i began to get therapy and get into support groups and process the pain because i had really buried the reality of what had happened to me i think so i could function as a kid um and only then could i look back and say Oh my God, these women that I had sex with, they they were truly just objects to me. And I never called them afterwards. And, and it was, and it never even occurred to me to call them afterwards. Uh, and I sometimes wonder if what had happened to me had been, uh, more overt or if there had been violence in it. I mean, what? what might have become of me it's it's kind of scary exactly like i say if you had something that wasn't quote-unquote violent you know yeah. uh, and that's a I mean, there is a, certainly a violence in right. any Just in the act adult itself. in the right. act itself. But what you have then is it's a learned behavior. You, you didn't, since you grew up with it, you didn't realize you were angry because that just was a norm for you. Yes. Okay? So if you were being tortured or beaten or you know mm-hmm. burned and then whatever, 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 and that that hatred for women became really exaggerating on a scale mm-hmm. of one to a hundred, you're at the hundred level. Yeah. Now you're the serial killer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that's it's rare stuff, yes. but there's a lot of people in our country. And so the numbers can add up after a while. And the other thing is I realized that I got off on objectifying myself, that that was a turn on for me to be to recreate the objectification. But in a sense, I had, quote unquote, control over the situation. Now, I was choosing to be objectified by by these women, because as soon as you would see me as a person and get to know me, then I would shut down and I would would have no interest. Right. That was that was it was scary to you Mm -hmm. because you never learned anything any different. It's the habit. That's you're you're the you're the guy with the tub of a. Cool whip. Okay. You're the guy. Really, I mean, because yes. that's what you know. You're the guy who shows up. Uh, he's in his 30s. He's married, but you know, so you think he's fine, whatever. But he wants to meet the 13 year old who, in his mind, doesn't have any sexual experience. So she's like a uh, an easy target, someone that he can actually be nice to, and she'll be nice to him. She won't yell at him or belittle him or yes. whatever. Uh, and and again, to to men, men have the ability just to say. Well, this is just a physical act. It's nothing. It's nothing beyond that. Okay, and if that really is hammered into you, especially by uh, someone who's sexually assaulting you, there's no intimacy. There's nothing. It's just a, a physical, mechanical thing. Yeah, that's what you learn. It's like the poopy diaper guy. He learned poopy diapers, yeah. and it was just mechanical to him. And that's what it was. Yeah. So, um, getting back to your uh, talking about the uh, postpubescent boys, uh, postpubescent male children. What, what, what do you? Call them uh, 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 Phoebe file, uh, uh, 
Well, the boys are just teenage boys, but the, okay, offenders, teenage boys. the, the offenders are someone who has a sexual preference for post-puberty boys. I call Phoebephilia. Okay. It has to do one of the Greek gods. Phoebe was, I don't know, don't, I don't even go there. Right. You won't find it in the dictionary, believe me. I stole that term from the FBI years ago, and they've backed away from it now and used the more generic epiphilia, spelled with an E, E-P-H, epiphilia for both boys and girls. Okay. Um, for what I do, I teach interviewing, and mm-hmm. so I like to separate them out. For another reason, I could separate those two out. But boys, what we see is that post-puberty boys are a big, big target population out there. If you think about it, we send our teenage boys out to conquer the world and send them out there, and they're out there, and who knows who they're going to run into. We're maybe more protective of our girls, and so they're a very high population group for being targeted. Yeah. And are they mostly targeted by men? Men, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it has nothing to do with homosexuality either. Yes. It, it, it's a whole different thing. Okay. It has nothing to do with being homosexual. Homosexual men will turn in a, a Phoebe file in a minute. They don't like that at all. Um, yeah, it has nothing to do with homosexuality. Absolutely mm-hmm. nothing. And so what do you learn? Uh, what have you learned about this part of the population that, that people don't realize are, are at risk? What are you, what are the effects of it that, that you are seeing? What are the myths? What are the stumbling blocks to um, making headway? Well, what happens is, is you have to look at the, the target population, okay? And what you have is kids who are not uh, connected to strong parental figures. So they're looking for something. There's a separation between them and between them and their family. Be it mom, dad, step parent, whoever. Somebody needs to step in. You have the separation. There's a void there. Nature uh, here's a uh, uh, doesn't like a void. So either drugs, gangs, or the neighborhood molester steps in. Okay. So you have a, a, a 13, 14, 15 year old boy who's looking for somebody, and along comes a nice guy who's willing to talk to him, spend time with him, take him fishing, whatever. And the child realizes that to pay for this, he has to allow the touching, which can be very mild over the clothing or intercourse, maybe whatever it is, depending on how uh, a, n- a number of factors kind of thing. And so the boy learns that he has to, he's called non-complaining. He's not consenting, but he's not complaining of the sexual stuff because he needs the other attention. A lot of those kids can kind of get out of it eventually. They're kind of thrown out of it, you know, uh, but when they get too old, the, the offender just dumps them and gets rid of them and mm-hmm. they, they, they can actually go ahead and do okay with life, with life, you know. I was a part of a, uh, a documentary years ago called Close to Home uh, that was uh, dealt with uh, the disclosure issue of child molest. It dealt with a lot of that. And there was some um, uh, Mark McGuire, the home run guy back mm-hmm. years ago. He was he funded it. He was a uh, uh, he produced it, the movie kind of stuff. It was really very interesting. And they had some sports stars come in who had been molested by their coaches uh, in that age group and how it affected them. They talked about it at some length. How they can you can end up being okay within the the, the the definition of okay, but you need to go talk about it to somebody because, again, you end up objectifying people. You go, what's wrong with me? It, it kills your self-esteem, your ability to to uh, establish close relationships with people. It, it can it can mess you up. Depression, uh, anxiety, alcoholism, suicidal, uh, all, all yeah. those kind of things. All those kind of things can happen. So when you when you see that, you go, okay, what what's going on here? Is there something here? And it's such a secret in our society that if you're a victim of child molest, pre-puberty child molest, it's almost okay to talk about now. We almost have people mm-hmm. who enjoy talking about it. I was molested. Hi, my name's Bob. I was molested. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you're talking about a teenage boy, the homosexual stigma comes in and you should have done something. All that kind of, of, of stuff is, uh, is still very powerful. Um, they forget that a 15 year old still has a child's brain. Well, absolutely. And, and, uh, 
in my latest book, okay, the yeah. one, I, one I wrote, what, what I try to talk about there is we need to change the way America looks at child molest. I am so tired of hearing people saying, well, I never told anybody. I never told anyone. I should have told someone. I should have done this. I should have that. No, you were a child. No. The question should be, no one ever asked. Yes. Okay. It is a parent's responsibility to ask. It is grandma's responsibility. Aunt, uncle, a neighbor, the school teacher. Somebody needs to ask, are you okay? What's going on with you? Someone needs to ask. And we ask if they've done their homework. Did you brush your teeth? Did you pick up your socks? Did you hit your sister? We ask all those things, but we don't ask, why are you spending so much time at that guy's house down there? Okay, why why you know, don't you come home on time? Why don't, what's wrong with that teacher or what's wrong with that coach, that kind of stuff? We don't ask those questions. And kids who are disconnected from their parents aren't likely to volunteer. And that's the dynamic you have. A kid who's disconnected finds it, runs into this type of offender well, they don't have anyone to come talk to because they're not connected to mom and dad. Mm-hmm. So somebody else has to step in, mom, aunt, uncle, grandparents, somebody, and ask the question. And what we've never done in our country is is say, let's change the table here. And instead of putting the responsibility of identifying child molesters on the shoulders of children, let's put it on the shoulders of the parents and say, it's your job to ask the question. We ask a thousand questions over kids every day. Let's ask that one, too. And just until and once that happens, it's like okay to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's what we need to do, and we're not doing it. You know, that's that's one I, of the focuses of what I'm trying to to get out there. You know, well, what a what a great uh, thing to to get behind. And you know, the other thing that I would love to start teaching kids uh, when they're little, so not only could they have those tools as kids, but when they grow up to be adults and become parents themselves, is how to understand boundaries how to understand how to express your emotions you know we like to think that we're the greatest country in the world because economically we are but in terms of uh, emotional literacy uh, we are uh, you know there's a there's a plague there's a we live in in an emotional desert absolutely and i see it in my caseload and, and again i have a very uh, focused group when I deal with with sex offenders. I'm dealing with kids who are always disconnected. You know, almost always, always, always. And and you think about again another thing that that, that irritates me. We had this scandal about the the priesthood. Okay, other priests mm-hmm. were molesting all these boys and stuff. Okay, again, mostly boys. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, interesting. Okay, that that's the boy. That's the target population. Okay, but no one took it deeper than that. Okay, what well, you have by definition. Or intact families, no divorce. Okay, mom and dad living together with with the kids and that kind of stuff. They're inviting the priest over to spend the night, the weekend, that kind of stuff. They're mm-hmm. the religious families are hardworking, tax paying, God fearing families. Yet the molest went on for years and years and years, and nobody knew about it because no one was asking the question. It was mm-hmm. up to the kids to tell us. And we tell our kids: if a stranger touches you, don't talk to strangers. Which is like not going to happen to strangers mm-hmm. you know stranger danger is so ridiculous i mean it's scary if it happens to you but it's statistically insignificant but and then if somebody touches you you have to come and tell me well okay that's okay four-year-old you tell me or 14-year-old you come tell me 14-year-olds don't tell you anything <laughs> i mean what do you do at school today nothing <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's what you get, okay? You have to, yeah. have to learn to have a dialogue with them. And I, and I think you also, in, in the greater context of your relationship with those with your children, you have to understand, is it a safe and nurturing environment where there's a safety for them to tell you things that the right. child might be afraid would upset you? Children don't understand sometimes the difference between a parent being upset at a situation and a parent being upset at them. 
Right. Absolutely. They can't. They don't have the social skills to make that distinction. Yeah. Absolutely. And what the question is? Okay. The question you should have been asking me, Paul. The question, <laughs> the question is. Okay. Is what's the number one way? The number one way. The number one technique a parent can use to protect their children from child molesters. Okay. And the answer is to fill them up with self-esteem. That's the answer. Okay. Over and over again, it's filled up with self-esteem. I don't care if they're 8 years old, 28 years old. If they are filled up with self-esteem, they don't have to go off to college, get silly-ass drunk just to fit in, and then they wake up in bed with somebody they don't even know. Okay? If, they, if they're filled up with self-esteem, they don't need to do that. When I was raising my boys, there was a child molester down the street, across the street, and down a little bit. I knew who he was because I, I controlled the sex offender file. I didn't care if my kids were over there because he had a grandkid who was playing there. They'd play with him because my kids were filled up with self-esteem. I knew he, he would be afraid of them. They look for the vulnerable child. They see it in their eyes. If you think about the lion yeah. on the Serengeti, he's looking for the antelope who's walking with a limp. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the tario. Okay, that's what they're looking for. The, the sex offender is looking for the kid who's walking with a limp. And it's real easy for them to identify that kid. They'll come up, they'll put their arm around his shoulder, and if the kid sinks into them, into them, that kid's available. If he pulls away, he's not. It's just that simple. Or a variety of very, very simple techniques they'll use to see if this kid is longing that sort of a, of a connection or a contact with somebody. As long as your kids don't uh, need that, sex offenders will stay away from them. And would it be fair to say, too, that the kid that has self-esteem also has a sense of boundaries and, and knows absolutely this is you. You are crossing a line and I'm going to speak either right. speak up for myself or extricate myself right. from this situation. Absolutely. I don't need that anymore. I, I don't need you to get away from me. What are you doing? This isn't your playground. And you have those talks with them just like that. Yeah. You know, that this is your body. It's not their playground. Don't let anybody touch you. You know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And, and they just they will stand up for themselves if they know they, that's what they're supposed to do. And they'll come and talk to you again. But again, hopefully you're debriefing them routinely, not mm. hour by hour, but, you know, every now and then you say, hey, what's going on with your school? Anything going on? Good, bad, whatever. Hanging out with those new kids. What's their parents like? That kind of stuff. And just, you know, if, if they're, you're connected, uh, you'll see the behavior changes. They'll, they'll come and talk to you. you know? And the, the other thing I see in the surveys are the people that had their uh, self-esteem crushed by a parent, uh, sometimes even a parent who was just indifferent to them Mm -hmm. not even necessarily abusive the thing that i see is how consistently sick the relationships are that these people uh get into how uh they stay well i shouldn't say that's that's not a, a a broad stroke that they all do but so often they get into relationships with people that treat them like shit just like their parents did right that's what domestic violence is all about we have these adult women Sometimes men of adult women who won't get out of the relationship. I mean, we tell them, this guy's beating the crap out of you. Get out of the relationship. Well, I don't know. It's all I deserve. And it's because he apologizes to he me. Apologizes. He's so nice on Sundays. They're right. They're rolling, riding that roller coaster, that kind of thing. And uh, we get into domestic violence stuff. But it's a lot of self-esteem issues where you're going, well, what are you doing with this guy? We see some that are horrible where you're going, this guy is treating you like dirt. It's not even like occasionally. It's all the time. But they feel that's all they deserve because of what happened. Now. The next question you should be asking me. <laughs> Maybe we should change roles here. Okay? Uh, the next question you should be asking me is, where do the offenders come from? Okay, and in in my way of thinking, offenders of which of which sex type? offenders. Okay, okay. And again, I touch about it in, in Beyond Stranger Danger, the book. Is you have kids who were born into the world with all the genetic potential to become president or whatever, astronauts or whatever. Okay. 
and at some point there is this disconnection between their parents and they, they there's a, a falling out there or some reason sometimes it's a physical disconnection you know they're divorced or someone dies or whatever mm-hmm. but on the victim side it's easy to say i'm the kid is looking for something they're not getting at home and so the child molester comes around or they're on the internet and then that that person fills that void on the suspect side the offender side you have the same disconnection but instead of filling it with finding another offender finding a bad guy they learn to translate all their emotions into anger and project them towards somebody okay and so they become the offender model they learn to eroticize violence again they have this genetic predisposition they have a family trauma or a life or a whole bunch of traumas throughout their life they're feeling isolated alone that makes them angry anxiety filled you know self-esteem sad all that kind of stuff and men can take that and translate all that into anger and project it and make someone feel worse than they do which is what rape is all about. I'm going to make you feel worse than I do. That, that's the typical narcissistic personality. I'm outside, I'm real bravado, but inside I'm jello. So I'm going to take care of the jello part by making you feel crappy. So what you need is you need one from the victim side of the, of the, popu- of the, of the, of the equation and someone from the suspect side to cross paths. Okay, and then you have the molest scenario, okay, because you have someone who's looking for something and someone who's looking to target. Okay, my theory is if you could reduce both populations by better parenting by just 20% on each side, then the math gets kind of weird as to how much do you reduce child molest because you'd have less offenders and, mm-hmm. and less victims. Now, when I grew up, your world was as however far you could ride your bicycle. Okay, that was kind of your environment. Well, now yeah. we have the internet, uh, and so it's you know, the whole planet is, is, is open to you. So you have a bigger possibility of bumping into somebody who might be a child molester. But again, it's a self-esteem issue on both sides of the equation. We produce the victims. We produce the suspects. Okay. And that nobody wants to address that. We just like we accept sex offenders. Well, they're just here. Or you know? people say, you know, we should we should uh, electrocute them all. Well, okay. No. You know, that, that what how is that going to help the future? It, it doesn't attack the the, the, the core issue. It does, yeah. it, it's saying, okay, this, we're just trying to put a Band-Aid on it when we're not dealing with the source. Yeah. And we need to deal with becoming better parents. You talked about um, social, how, how we are emotionally you know, barren a lot of times is, mm. is a way for it. Well, that comes from bad parenting. Parents do, well, a lot of them do the best they can. Okay, but we have so many alcoholic, drug-addicted, gang, you know, you know, parents who just don't know how to be parents that it's hard to some to figure out how some kids can even function. You know, they don't have anybody there. Hopefully they'll find the, the coach or the teacher or somebody will point him in the right direction, you know. But without that, they're just floundering out there. And, you know, you have to buy a license to catch a fish. Okay, but to be a parent, no, all you need is a little time in the drive-in and, a, I mean, <laughs> you know, wherever, you know, that's where kids come from, right? And so you can be a parent with no training whatsoever, and that really reflects on how the kids grow up. We just sort of somehow assume we just know how to raise children but we don't so what are some other questions i should be asking you (laughs) (laughs) oh geez other questions oh that's a tough one oh you really kind of get me going here i think the the a question that that people like to ask is what if you do become confronted with someone like this okay the first one stranger danger is relatively rare i mean it's like meaning a stranger who a stranger walks who, down your walks into the park when you're there right and, yeah and, yeah statistically your kids are safer in the park than they are at home okay i mean really you know that let's let's pass a law and keep strangers out of the park no let's move the kids to the park because they're getting molested at home okay <laughs> i mean i mean it's incredible you're, you're gonna have to change the name of that bill <laughs> okay i'm serious because the amount of times a kid is molested in the park is like 
nothing compared to what they're being molested at at home, okay? Uh, it's like 0.03% of all child molesters by strangers, okay? Now, it doesn't mean we should ignore it, I'm just saying, but we yeah. need to look at the, at the bigger picture here. To me, understanding the offender is real important. Okay, what's he thinking? What's the fantasy? What does he want? In his mind, he's thinking that force is consent. If I force you to do this, then it's actually consent, and you'll fall madly in love with me, like in the movie Rollover, dating myself again with Chris Christopherson and Jane Fonda. Okay, after Chris Christopherson saves the world from economic ruin, he kicks open Jane's bedroom door, and she goes, Oh, my God, who are you? Oh, it's you, take me. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's rape fantasy. Okay, that's, that's out-and-out rape fantasy. The offender thinks, if I force this woman, she'll fall in love with me. Mm-hmm. If we know that... Okay, then you just got to tell them that ain't going to happen, pal. Okay, you got to interrupt that. Once they get into what what I call anti-logic, it's the it's the mental state they're in at the time that they're committing the the offense. Okay, it's real difficult for them to think logically when they're in anti-logic. Okay, because mm-hmm. they have this this fantasy they're acting out the the ritual, whatever you want to call it, they're acting out. What you want to do is interrupt it. You want to throw a roadblock up there because they can't recover from it real quickly because they need logic to logic themselves out of the situation. So if you can throw up a roadblock somehow, I've had women in their 80s. Okay, we had a guy called the Belmont Shores Rapist breaking in the houses, buck naked. Okay, he's in his late 20s, buck naked, middle of the night. We've had women in their 80s look at him and go, what are you doing here, pal? And just literally push him out the door, slam the door in his face and lock the door. Okay, because he wasn't anticipating that. He was anticipating some sort of, oh, no, not me. I'll give up because I you know, get psychologically captured. I'll give up. Just don't, don't kill me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's they, what he was getting off on was, was that type of no, response. No, his, his history has told him that that's what women will do. There's six phases to a sexual assault. Okay, there's approach, which is where I approach you, buy you a drink, or approach your house or your car, mm-hmm. whatever. There's contact, which is when they announce the rape. I'm here to rape you or whatever. Mm-hmm. Don't do what I say, do what I say, whatever. And then there's the psychological capture of the victim. You can have physical capture also if they hit you on the head and you're unconscious, okay? But most of the time, it's a psychological capture where women have been told, I better give up so he won't kill me. Once that happens, you stop thinking about escape. You stop thinking about a lot of things. The offender's behavior has told him, his, his past experiences told him that this psychological capture is going to occur. And once that happens, then he'll start acting out the fantasy and you have some sort of the dialogue of the sexual assault itself and post-assault behavior and the guy flees the scene. And after psychological capture and the actual sex, we see all this dialogue, all the acting out of the fantasy, say this, do that, you know, stand on your head, turn the lights on, lights off, whatever it is, whatever the fantasy is, you'll see that acting itself out. If the women don't become psychologically captured, okay, then they're at a better, it doesn't mean they'll be able to fight their way out of it, but it gives them a chance to say, okay, is there a way for me to maneuver my way to the door? If he if he wants me to consent, you say, oh, wait, 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 wait. The neighbors might see. Let me get over here and close the door. Bam, out the door they go. You, mm-hmm. you, if you can click, click into that. One of the greatest cases we had um, uh, was a 13-year-old girl who, after school, again, 40% of sex crimes occur during the day. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's almost half, okay, occur in the daytime, okay. So her job after school was to pick up two little kids, like a one-year-old and a three-year-old at grandma's house, take them over to mom and dad's house so they were all both working key her way into the house and just babysit them till six mm-hmm. okay okay no big deal did every day after school she comes in one day and there's a rapist there okay it was a serial rapist we knew him and who he was he's on parole for rape and he has a big knife and he captures her and says do what i say do what i say i'll kill the kids you know so we approach in contact do what i say do what i say or i'll kill the kids okay mm-hmm. okay so she becomes sort of captured by him because he's got to protect the kids he takes her down the long hall to the master bedroom with the big double doors, has her undress. 
She's sitting on the bed. He undresses in front of her. Since she is psychologically captured, his experience tells him he can put the knife down because she will not try to flee. Mm-hmm. He puts the knife down. Again, he's thinking that if I force this girl, this will be a wonderful experience. She wants me to force her and we'll ride off in the sunset live happily ever after. So as he starts to push her on the bed and get on top of her, she's going, I've never been here before. I don't know what's going on here. But in a, just a brilliant moment for a 13-year-old, she puts her hands on his chest and says, let me be on top, big boy. And she rolls him over onto the bed on, next to her. That's his fantasy. Oh, my God, she wants me. She wants me. This is going to be wonderful. So now he's lying on his back going, okay, mm-hmm. baby, here I am for you. His fantasy is being fulfilled. And she looks at him, and she sees the knife on the floor, and she picks the knife up. She has it in both hands, and she tells me during interview, she goes, no one's ever told me where to stab this guy at. Nose, toes, somewhere in between. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know where to stab him. So she closes her eyes, goes, and stabs him. And the knife goes through the, the, the just below the belt line, and actually pegs into the pelvis bone, and she can't pull it back out. It's like boing, and she can't get it back out. So oh, she, she, she can't tug it out of there, right? Mm-hmm. So she goes, okay, feet, get me out of here. She runs down the hall, scoops up the kids, turns around, and the bad guy is now standing in the double doorway, hands on each side, looking at her like, what the hell just happened? Why did you do that to me for? He reaches down with his right hand, grabs the knife blade, and pulls it out of his side. Big gushing blood is you know, coming mm-hmm. out, blood dripping off the knife. It's like a horror movie, right? And she says, feet, give me out, and she runs off kind of a thing. Okay. The moral of the story is she did not become psychologically captured. She was physically captured because she's got the kids to deal with, okay? <laughs> but psychologically, because she was 13 and didn't know any better or whatever, she didn't become captured where you said, just do what you want to me. And she found an opportunity to escape. It doesn't mean you're always going to escape. I'm not saying that, okay? But I'm thinking if, if, if you are always thinking to escape, it's like standing up to the bully. You still may lose the fight, but at least you stood up to him, that kind of mm-hmm. thing, okay? And so what we need to do is teach women, just realize that you that the, what is normal is for you to become psychologically captured. You go off into something called rape trauma syndrome, which is a whole other lecture. But if you don't do that, okay, if you don't become psychologically captured, then you can always weigh your options. And I think just telling people that, just realize this is what your brain's going to do to you. Don't let it do it to you, mm-hmm. is a is a is a wonderful thing uh, for them to recapture uh, some control over the body and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I feel myself slipping over here. I'm not going to let that happen. And a lot of women have just pushed, have just stared the guy down. You know, we work in the moment chores rapists. A lot of times he failed because the women just pushed him out the door, just stared him down and said, uh-uh, pal, you have to work for me. And again, it depends on how out of whack he is. If he's 20% mm-hmm. out of whack versus 80%. 80%, you got a fight on your hands. 10%, yeah, maybe not so much. Yeah. You know, and you don't know that until you're in contact with the guy, yeah. And I would say the other thing to educate would be uh, men who think that women want to be in a consensual, <laughs> think that rape is consensual. <laughs> well, yeah, where does that come from? How do, how, yeah. do you, how do you get that sort of twisted set of, you know, uh, mindset? Uh, I'm trying to make this too much of an infomercial, but in Beyond Stranger Danger, the book I talk about, we talk about that scenario where the girl is, because of self-esteem issues or whatever, is yes. is using sexuality to, to gain social power. Mm-hmm. You see this all the time where the freshman girl is having sex with the, the star quarterback, the senior boy, in order to gain social power, and he's using social power to get sex. Okay, that's, an, that's an uneven equation. It's not a good deal kind of a thing, right? So I'm not blaming the girls at all. But what we as fathers need to do is tell our boys, hey, just because the girl says yes doesn't mean you should. 
you have no idea what psychological, emotional baggage this girl is coming in, 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 into school with or coming to the fraternity with. She may have been molested forever, raped forever. She doesn't, she, she's been taught that she doesn't have control over her body and she equates sexuality with social status. That's not someone you have, have sex with because she could be a stalker kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Plus, you're not doing her any favors. You keep knocking her self-esteem down. You have to be sure that the sexual equation is equal. And we're not telling our kids that. I told my boys, anything other than yes means no. Okay, they're mm-hmm. starting to do that on college campuses now. They're having the yes means yes campaign. Okay, as so opposed to, well, maybe, or I'm passed out drunk, so go ahead, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, yes means yes. It almost has to be like a, a contract. Or I'm awake, I'm sober, yes, I'm willing to do this. Uh, and that's what we need to do. We're at that point in our society where we, we need that type of social contract because we're not teaching it as a part of our parenting. We're very into math and science and video games and yeah. all that kind of stuff, but we're not into into social etiquette and respecting other people's boundaries. Wouldn't, and that it, kind wouldn't of stuff. it be great if they started teaching boundaries classes oh, right along nice. with, with math? Wouldn't that be nice? And I don't know that the schools are equipped to do that. You know, they're having enough trouble with reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, uh, that add in all these other social issues. But things that we used to see families when he had grandma and, you know, all the, all living in the same farmhouse together where they taught all these things. You know, there's always mm-hmm. somebody to watch the kids. You saw this sort of evolution of, of ethics and morality and don't take advantage of people. We were, uh, in my job, we see a lot of where that just doesn't exist anymore. You know, if I can get away with it, why not? Mm-hmm. And we see it in fraud and all kinds of things. Or if I can steal that guy's money, why not? You know, Do you sometimes look at Wall Street and think they're – the the stereotypical Wall Street thief. Do you do you sometimes look at them as really just rapists? But money is their thing, or there's kind of a similar well, a similar uh, mentality with with them. Do I sometimes? How about all the time? Okay. <laughs> yeah, because what you have is is that that thinking that it's okay to uh, claw my way to the top. You know, destroy the competition, walk on the little people, do whatever I need to to get what I to attain what I want. Only thing that 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 is differentiates them from the sex offenders, they've never added the sex offender component, the component of eroticizing violence. Okay, they've they've never had that 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 it's not put into their equation. But the idea of just abusing, taking advantage of, yeah, da 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 da. If you added that component of somehow somewhere, I learned to eroticize or to feel good about taking advantage of that person, uh, molesting them or exposing myself to them, peeping mm-hmm. in them, whatever, whatever level it is, mm-hmm. then, yeah, it's, just, it's the same mentality. Yeah, it's the same thing. But if you make a lot of money, then you're that's okay. You're on the cover of Fortune yeah. 500. Yeah, you're okay if that's, if that's what you do. Until you get caught. And then, and then we all furrow our brows and say, "How do we let this happen?" Yeah. And yet we, oh, Bernie, take, how did Bernie steal all that money from everybody? I don't know. You know, I, don't, I, I wish that every time we put somebody on the cover of, of Fortune 500, we would also have an article about how's their, how are their uh, kids doing, how are how are they doing uh, psychologically, how's their esteem. Right, and and some of them may be great. You know, uh, you, know yes. you don't you don't want to just paint everybody with the same brush. But yeah. I remember. The city, some years ago, the city I worked for was kind of upset with me because a couple of days before the big parade, we arrested the Grand Marshal for child molest. And he was into teenage boys. That was his mm-hmm. thing. Uh, married a big guy in the church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the case just develops, you know, it just comes to us, develops, and we ended up arresting him a couple of days before the parade, so they go out and find a new Grand Marshal. And they're kind of looking at me like, 
You're a grand marshal. Well, what the hell do you want me to do? I mean, <laughs> I don't care if you're a grand marshal. It's a parade. I don't care. <laughs> it's a stupid parade. Who's going to remember it next week, right? Uh, but yeah, that happens. You get the, the, the people just because they're successful doesn't mean they're bad people, but it doesn't mean they're immune from it either. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share? No. Uh, you're, the name of your book is uh, Stranger Danger? Uh, the, the new one is is Beyond Stranger Danger. Yeah. Beyond Stranger Danger. Beyond Stranger Danger. And what it's was the a, one before that? The one before that has had several titles. The one I, I wrote for law enforcement. Right now it's called Sex Crime Interviews Simplified, which will change here sometime. Uh, but it's how to interview victims and then suspects using the behavioral model. And these are some out of, I brought some out of dated ones. I can't wait to read these. Because they're, th- those titles are all bogus now, but the information is pretty much the same. And are these, uh, available to the general public? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. LawTech Publishing Limited down in San Clemente publishes them. And so you can go to their website or to mine, you know, DH Lectures, and, and they'll refer you to there. You can buy them there if you want. It, it, this is designed for law enforcement folks. Okay. Uh, but you can, anybody can read it. It's not secret information. And what was the name of, of the uh, Roy Hazelwood book that you recommended, uh, Evil Men Do. Oh, I gotta read that. Yeah, I, I, I just Roy's talked to a lot of very strange, scary people. Very, you know, it's really interesting to talk to him. Do you? Uh, do you ever? Sometimes I've judged myself for being so into that stuff. Have you ever judged yourself for being so into that, yeah. or was that the first month forty years ago, and you? Don't judge no, yourself I, since then. No, I never got, I, I just found it as fascinating. It's such an education. It's just, it's just tremendous. And what, what I'm really looking for, I hate to say this, I'm looking for, is Roy Hazelwood will tell you this, that you're not really a success in this business until you arrest a bad guy and he's got your book in his house, in his house. Okay. <laughs> and I've arrested guys who have had John Douglas as they come in and talk about John. Hey, do you read this John Douglas book? Yes. Oh yeah. And we talk about it because they try to diagnose themselves by reading those, those books and they go, I'm not as bad as that guy. Yeah. Because I'm only this bad. Yeah. Uh, I'm an organized yeah. killer. I'm not a disorganized, not a disorganized one. Absolutely. And yeah. so, you, so you see that. What's your signature? Yeah. So I'm looking for somebody to have my books in their, in their, uh, oh my their God. Category. John Douglas's book is called Mind Hunter. And, uh, to anybody who has never read it, it is, it, it was the, I think the most compelling book I've ever, I've ever read. And, uh, mm-hmm. he was the, uh, guy that the Scott Glenn character was, uh, based on in Silence of the Lamb, if I'm, Lambs, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah he did that. He also wrote Unsub, uh, the, the, the Unabomber guy. He did. Uh, he's done a lot of fabulous stuff. Uh, and they, those guys really have a grasp on the psychology of this, you know. Where, like I said, that's why I steal their material all the time that I can. And I've been fortunate enough to steal their material and put it into to play in my root, more routine caseload, you know, because they deal with that one percent of the sex offender population. I deal with the other ninety nine. But the rules kind of apply. They really kind of uh, apply to them. I can take that theory and apply it down here. It works pretty cool. Give me, yeah. an, uh, before we go, give me an example of a case that you broke um, where you feel like you were able to put all of the little bits that you'd learned through the years and felt a, a, a sense of pride that you were able to use your history of expertise to, to crack something that maybe the average newbie to it wouldn't have seen. Well, I've been working on a, a 48-hour segment here. It'll, it'll air sometime in January. Uh, and this case took 20 years to solve. And what happened was it was two offenders, two anger rapists, anger rapists and a follow-the-leader rapist. 
and we knew behaviorally that the anger rapist was dominant and the other guy was his subordinate, therefore be like a half-brother, step-brother. Is that like cousin, a Kenneth so, Bianchi, one of those? You know, yeah, one of those kind of things where you got uh, uh, the, the two freeway killers, that kind of stuff where he had that dominant, subordinate kind of behavior. And so we realized that. And once we were able through DNA to identify who the dominant was, we started looking at who fits the, the behavioral component for the, the, the second one. And ultimately, we identified that person on went and got his DNA, and he turned out to be the second guy. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that just kind of slips together for you, you know. What really works for me, and my whole thing is, is, is victim and suspect interviewing. And when the components come together for me, it's when I can take all of this and say, okay, let's talk. And you take a guy who's going to say, I didn't do it. And in a half hour saying, yeah, I did it. To me, that's fabulous. And we did one. Um, his last name was Plum. And, uh, a rapist guy. He's a kind of routine rapist kind of guy. And we went from, don't know what you're talking about. He thought he could outsmart me. He tells me at the end, yeah, I thought I could outsmart you. I came in here knowing I, I could out, outdo you. And finally, I look at him and I tell him, I said, you're an approval-seeking power rapist. If I opened up the dictionary, there'd be your picture, your approval seeking power rapist. I actually retired. I said, I had, I'd actually retired a few days earlier. I said, here's my retirement badge. I said, said I, they called me back just to talk to you. This is who you are. I know exactly who you are behaviorally. And he looked at me and goes, yeah, you're right. I raped her. Wow. And it turned just like that. And it still took another hour to pull it all out of him because he's not going to just give it to you. But I, there's a whole interviewing process we go through to, to, to deal with these offenders. But to me, that's the real key okay, to to get them in the interview room and get them to cop out. Because, you know, you can come up with all this profiling, behavioral kind mm-hmm. of stuff, but you still need to get some patrol cop to catch the guy fleeing the scene or a fingerprint or a DNA hit or a license plate or something like that to, to attract it to him. You can have all the behavior in the world. And it's not like on TV where it directs you down to that one guy. I mean, I wish it was that easy because we can do profiling forever. And it still doesn't help us catch him. Best cop show ever. Police story. That was a good one. Uh, that was Wamba, right? Wamba, yeah, absolutely. I, he really told it like it was, yeah. And the yeah. Onion Field, Choir Boys. Yeah, all that, yeah. He, he took it. He had the ability to to actually take police work and tell it like it is from the... the uh, uh, the standpoint of the cop to stress the uh, the you know because cops can thrive on stress people in there, you can thrive on stress but it can also wear you out and also break you and, and so you got to be real careful not that happen. I think his Wamba's line is police work is occasionally physically dangerous but it's always psychologically dangerous and mm. you have to be really on guard for that to make sure you don't let it get to you psychologically. Well, on behalf of uh, citizens everywhere, I want to thank you for rolling your sleeves up and getting in there. And, uh, and serving your community for all these, all these years. And, um, it's, it's a benefit to all, to all of us when, uh, somebody takes this on with a passion and a, and a curiosity. Cause I, I know people do their jobs a thousand times better when they're passionate and curious. Oh, very good. Thank you. This is my, this is my world. Six minutes are my life. I appreciate being able to talk to him, Paul. I appreciate you coming in or let me come in and talk to you about it. Thanks, Don. And if people want to get a hold of you, how could they get a hold of you? Uh, I have a couple of websites. One is DH Lectures for Don Howell, DHLectures.com. And the other one is the new one, BeyondStrangerDanger.com. Okay. Uh, thanks, right. thanks, thanks for having me. Many, many thanks to uh, to Don. You know what I wanted to, as I was listening back to that episode, I thought, I wish I would have asked him about where, you know, what his thoughts are on entrapment when you're, when you're doing those kind of undercover things because um, 
there's some times where I where I feel like uh, that's uh, that's not cool uh, to do those things. But uh, I didn't know more of the particulars. I wished I would have asked him more of the particulars about when he said they were posing as as people. Um, and I think it was a chat room. Anyway, uh, I feel like I dropped the ball on not asking that question. And I just wanted to beat myself up publicly about that. Oh, also the uh, 48 Hours episode that um, Don was talking about, it apparently already aired, but it um, is still on their website. I don't know the name of it. He hasn't gotten back to me about uh, the name of the episode, but um, go check that out if you uh, if you care to. want to give some love to our, our sponsor for this episode, uh, goodtherapy.org, which is a fantastic website to find the right therapist for you. You just type in your zip code, you tell them uh, how much of a mile radius uh, you want to search for, and then all kinds of names with pictures come up of uh, therapists describing what they're licensed in, what their specialties are, and it's it's just a, a super, super simple way to um, find the right therapist for you. And I get emails all the time from people that um, don't even know how to find a therapist. Well, go to goodtherapy.org. Uh, you know, whether you're facing a mental health challenge, uh, like depression or anxiety or grief or just trying to cope with everyday bullshit um, like family conflict therapy can be a really really good tool for not only healing yourself but uh, finding out who you are and growing and becoming the person you want to be good therapy offers a non-judgmental environment in which you can feel connected supported and understood Um, And since 2007, goodtherapy.org has helped millions of people find qualified counselors and therapists. There is hope. There are people who care. And change is possible. So go find the right therapist at goodtherapy.org. Let's get to some surveys, folks. Don't have a lot of surveys. I think today's episode is maybe going to be one of the uh, shorter episodes we've we've done in a while. so those of you with a short attention span, uh, you're in luck. You lucked out. Click on this. There we go. This was an email that I got from uh, a guy that asked a question um, on episode 265 with Monica Hernandez. Um, you you said that uh, someone ref- being referred to as an old soul uh, is a red flag. Um, what do you mean by that? And what I meant was when you're when people talk about a um a child or an adolescent being an old soul to me it's usually a red flag that somehow that that child was forced to emotionally become an adult um before they really got to fully live their childhood out and the culprits seems to me like usually are a parent that placed their own emotional needs before the the kids or the kid maybe experienced maybe the parents were great but the kid experienced some type of terrible trauma um and um just kind of lost that childhood innocence so for me that's that's kind of what uh, what i meant by that uh this is a beautiful email that i got from um a woman who uh, wants to be referred to as live in the dream and um I think that's a username she has on our forum, too. And uh, she writes, I've been wanting to reach out uh, to you for a while. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of years. Uh, My brother molested me when I was young. I can't remember the exact ages, but he's 10 years older than me. When I finally got the courage to go to my mother and tell her what happened, um, 
I was in high school and realizing my brain was not functioning well around relationships or sexual thoughts. Her responses included, sometimes boys do that, and it stopped, didn't it? And what do you expect to gain by going to therapy and telling someone about it? And therapy is so expensive. And would getting an apology actually make you feel better? And you'll get over it in time. I'm 44 years old now, and not surprisingly, I have not gotten over it. A few years ago, I had an experience that helped me realize how much it was still affecting me. I was in a dressing room trying on a tight shirt. When I tried to get it off of me, my arms got stuck inside the shirt above my head. I couldn't get my arms out. I now realized I had a full-blown panic attack, but at the time, I thought I was just acting stupid. I mean, just relax and get your arms out. What's the big deal, idiot? But I couldn't relax and felt like the Incredible Hulk and wanted to just rip that fucking shirt to pieces so I could get my arms free. Suddenly, The memory of my brother pinning my arms down above my head came rushing into my mind, and I fucking lost it right there in the dressing room. I was brought up, obviously, uh, that we don't talk about these kinds of things. It's taken me over three years to finally get help. I didn't even know about RAIN until you brought it up, and I'm currently starting treatment there. RAIN, by the way, uh, stands for uh, Rape and Incest National Network, and the website is RAIN, R-A-I-N-N dot org. Um, continuing, I tried going last year, but I self-sabotaged the fuck out of it. You can only begin when you're ready to begin, right? Now I'm working on skills, on skills building before, I guess skills building. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, skill building, skills building before going into the nitty gritty and I'm glad I need it. I'm amazed at the physical reactions in my body when I try to speak. For years, I thought I had throat cancer, huge lump in my throat and or heart disease, disease, massive palpitations. Nope, it's just my body telling me to keep my fucking mouth shut like I've been told to. I've also started going to an art therapy class for victims of sexual assault. I've started reading Trauma and Recovery by uh, Judy Herman too. All of these things are working together and helping me put actual words like PTSD, panic attacks, and anxiety attacks to explain a lifetime of what I thought were just batshit crazy, overly emotional, fucked up responses to events that were actually, quote, triggering events. Also, thank you for having the forum on your website. About an hour before I went to my first therapy appointment, I had a massive attack. I've come to realize what the trigger was, but at the time, the physical reaction I was having almost made me go for a 10-hour drive rather than go to the uh, to the appointment, and I'm not kidding about that. The forum allowed me a place to release all that mental craziness and saved me a shit ton of gas money. I knew it was a safe place with people who would understand and be compassionate with what I was dealing with at the time. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to share with you. I almost skipped over the episode number 260 with Dr. Janice Webb on emotional neglect. I figured it had nothing to do with me. I mean, I was clothed, fed, my family is big into hugging and laughing, and we say I love you, so I'm obviously not emotionally neglected, but I put it on anyway while doing housework. There was a point where Dr. Webb said something about having no patience with your mom, and my ears perked up. I ended up rewinding the episode and really listened to it. I proceeded to have many moments of on-the-floor sobbing sessions in my kitchen. 90% of the things she talked about was a direct representation of my life. Oh my God, Paul, it was a fucking life-changing night for me, and I almost skipped it. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, 
anybody out there that has experienced sexual trauma, it doesn't matter how long ago it was, um, go to the RAIN website and um, you can often find either low uh, fee counseling or free counseling um, near you and they will help you find it and um, it can it can save your life it can give you uh, a life that you didn't imagine was for you where you're functioning and uh, and you're finding a way to live with uh, the emotions that come up all right continuing this is a struggle in a sentence this is filled out by Buffy she writes about her depression, anhedonia, like moving through mud with a hot, wet blanket over your brain. Um, about having OCD, if it's not color-coded, arranged by height, alphabetical, arranged by size and by emotion and type, then it's not neat. <laughs> about having codependency, if I don't rescue her, if I don't save her, then what use am I? And then a snapshot from her life. When I was seven, my parents took me to Sizzler for the first time. Up until this point, I'd only eaten at McDonald's in terms of restaurants. I didn't like it, so I freaked out and went and hid in the bathroom. Turns out I was having a panic attack, and later, while my fa family had a lovely meal, I was rocking back and forth in my bench, barely touching my food. Now they tell the story at family gatherings as a joke. Hilarious, right? It's amazing, amazing how much emotional uh, ignorance there is and, and how often, um, you know, overwhelming emotions that a child is experiencing are they're shamed into being told that they're being overly dramatic. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm not a parent, but I just see this time and time again where children are shamed for what they feel. Um, this is the same a survey filled out by Aurora, and she writes about her depression. Breath sinks in my lungs like mud, and my eyes are made of stones. About her PTSD. Every night I pause outside their bedroom door. I push it open softly. I am sure they're both dead in their little beds. Still warm, hair still damp from bath time. I can't breathe until I'm sure they can. Thank you for sharing that. This is from uh, a survey called Young Male Abused by Older Female, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Yep. And um, he writes, I was molested by my stepmother when she was in her 30s, and I was between the ages of 9 and 13 or 14. I haven't told anyone. Um, the feelings that come up uh, are too many to list. Uh, he feels that lots of damage was done. Um his environment that he lives in is obviously pretty dysfunctional, and uh, he's never reported it. Uh, he's also, he's straight, and uh, he's 17 years old. Buddy, I am sending you some love. Um, it's difficult for anybody to recover from um, sexual assault, uh, but I believe it's particularly difficult for, um, for boys and men. Because people, it's not on a lot of people's radar, and it is every bit as real and as painful as um, somebody else It's experiencing it. And um, I really hope you open up to somebody about it. And um, because who knows, um, she might wind up doing it to, to other people. But more importantly, you deserve. You deserve to be heard and felt and seen and and heal. 
So sending you some love. This is a happy moment filled out by Emily, and she writes, One of my favorite things that happens pretty regularly is when I get home from the gym, I love that I achieved something before 7 a.m. I love taking a hot shower and washing the sweat off. I love filling up my belly with hot, healthy food. I love having some time to relax and sit in silence before going to work. You know what, uh, Emily? I'm going to say fuck you because you've done more shit before 7 a.m., uh, that I then I probably get done by four o'clock, and uh, I'm resentful at you. And whatever I can do to get you to stop exercising, to start eating shitty, and sleeping in, um, I will. You are now on my radar, and I am coming after you because you're making the rest of us look bad. I cast you to the bowels of hell. This was filled out by uh, Savannah, and uh, she writes about her depression, uh, major depression, the stress and duality of caring so deeply about what others think about me while struggling to be able to feel anything else at all. Wow, that is a great one. About having depersonalization, derealization disorder. She writes, if I'm going to be watching from my outside, can you at least give me something more interesting to see? And about feeling like an imposter, she writes, I'm young, beautiful, have a great personality, a great career path, try to be the best and most empathetic person I possibly can, and I have a lot of potential, I think. And hopefully someone doesn't figure it out that it's all a made-up act. God, so many of us feel that way. So many of us feel that way. Well, I don't, I don't know about the young and beautiful, uh, great personality and great career path, but... Um, uh, in terms of having a lot of potential and being empathetic. Yeah, sometimes I, I you know, I'll have a moment with somebody where where I feel like I like I helped them and then a little voice in my head would be like, you, you know, you're just you didn't mean that. You're just a phony. God, it's that that mean voice is just so ugh. This was filled out by uh, <laughs> Delicate Fucking Flower and about her, this is a great one, about her anxiety, losing your mind with an audience. That was great. Uh, and then snapshot from her life. My husband has been struggling. He wants to do porn to make quick money. We are both on disability and live on a very limited income. He is a trans man, which can make it very difficult to find an open and safe workplace. I'm not okay with what he wants me to do. I feel like I'm being rigid and selfish for having such an issue with this. He says it's just sex. I feel like there is something very wrong with me for not being supportive. I never thought a partner would be wanting to do this and it's really a mind fuck. Um, I'm so glad you filled this out because do not do it if you don't want to. Do not. And that is not being supportive. This is a very, sex is a very personal thing. Um, you know, that's like saying, uh, you know, to somebody, um, get, get up on the stage and take a shit in front of everybody. Come on, it's, you're, you're just taking a shit. It's something you do, in, you know, every day. There's a difference between it just being sex between people and being sex that's going to be broadcast and live on the internet forever. And from what I've heard about porn, uh, the money is not that great. Apparently, the best money in porn is for girls doing it their first time after they turn 18. And from there, you should watch a, uh, a, a documentary called, um, oh, fuck. 
Um, Hot Girl Wanted. Hot Girls Wanted. I think that's what it's called. But it's just about that very thing. And it is a, it is an eye-opening documentary that every person should, uh, should watch. And, and, and I don't have an issue with porn. I have an issue with people doing porn that aren't 100% into it and aren't do, aren't doing it for the right reasons. And, um, I don't know what the right reasons would be, but I know there are some people that feel empowered by it and more power to them. But, uh, I can't disagree with your husband any more strongly. Um, so that's my two cents. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself decorative plate. Uh, and by the way, that last survey, I do like doing, <laughs> I do always like the metaphor of sex and taking a shit. To me, those, those go hand in hand. Um, happy moment by a woman who calls herself a decorative plate. She writes, long story, sort of, uh, short. I had plans to kill myself one day after work, and I was on my way to do so when a friend of mine walked out of the convenience store a block from my house and saw me and invited me to dinner. I went with her and our other friend, and by the time I was done with them, it was late, and I had too much to do, so I put off offing myself. In the, I love that I had too much to do. In uh, the week after, I realized I needed help and went to a walk-in clinic and started the process of getting better. Two years later, it's New Year's Eve 2015, and I was hanging out with that friend and another friend, and I asked her if she remembered that day, and she said she did. And I told her that I was going home to kill myself, and she said she knew that there was something wrong, which is why she insisted I come to dinner with her. At that point, I was about to start crying when our mutual friend said that she also feels depressed often, and then we all started planning, and now we get together every other Monday and do crafts and have dance parties, and we are making plans. I was going to, not, not to kill themselves, I was going to kill myself. I had bought the liquor, and I had the pills, and I lived a block away from a highway overpass. I was done, and I happened to see a friend, and then, two years later, we are both fighting our depression together, and I just, I know things aren't perfect, but I am so lucky. I mean, what, what a perfect example of the power of human connection. The power, uh, thank you for that. That just, uh, love that, love that. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself, I love bread, and about her depression, she writes, Oh, God, I love this one. My bed is the only place where I don't have to try. Oh, my God. I want that on my headstone. Oh. Snapshot from her life. Having depression and anxiety at the same time is exhausting. I get too depressed to care about anything as nothing seems real. However, at the same time, I care too much. When I set, summon up enough motivation to get out of bed and go to class, I can't focus on the lesson as I'm scared that my pen is making too much noise as I write and I'm annoying everyone. It's easier to lay in bed and compulsively distract myself with sitcoms while I chain smoke and watch it get later and later in my work untouched. Usually I end up wasting my evening worrying and sometimes cut myself as a punishment. Fun stuff. Oh, sending you some love. Man. That is a cycle. That is a cycle. That shame cycle. You should check out the book um, uh, Healing the Shame That Binds by, by John Bradshaw. Because um, shame is so cyclical. Shame and acting out are so cyclical. 
and the term for for what you're doing is similar to acting out, but it's called acting in, where you shut down, you cut off, you isolate, and um, yeah, but sending you some love and some bread. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself, can't think my brain will get me. How about her depression? I should have taken my antidepressants, but I was too tired to go to the bathroom to get them. Now I'm too depressed to move. Um, about compulsive behavior, she writes, when I pop my zits, it's like popping the stress right out of my skin. The empty space then immediately fills up with stress. I've never, I've never had the... Uh, zit popping um compulsion but i would imagine that is that is like any other like hair pulling or anything else that it, it when you get that kind of release that must be very temporarily uh satisfying this is an awful some moment filled up by a guy who calls himself apple he writes i was lying on my bed mulling over all my fears and anxieties as one does thinking about the state of the world all the bloody conflicts that my country has somehow mired itself in seemingly never ending and then it hit me if they ever decided to instate a draft like they did during the vietnam war my psychiatric rap sheet will in all likelihood let me off the hook i couldn't stop laughing <laughs> fantastic um, this is filled out by the Jezebel and uh, she writes about her sex addiction. I'm so lonely. I need you in me. I'm a disgusting whore. Get off. I need to shower in scalding water. I feel lonely again. Can you come over? About PTSD, she writes, every time my toddler hugs me, I have to remind myself that every touch isn't the same as daddy's. Oh, that is heartbreaking. About experiencing uh, racial bias, she writes, it's as if um, being well-spoken with a high IQ is improbable with dark skin. I'm not whitewashed. I'm educated. Snapshot from her life. Get up, drop my daughter at daycare, go to work counseling women with high-risk pregnancies, addictions, homeless, domestic violence, body memories and flashbacks throughout the day. Lunch break, cut myself in the bathroom, clean up, smile, socialize with coworkers. Finish work, pick up my daughter, make dinner, put her to bed, drink a bottle of wine, cut some more, post pictures on Facebook of myself and daughter happily playing at the park, citing how much I love our life, take handful of meds, go to sleep. Oh, that is heartbreaking. And just remember that, you know, when you're comparing your outsides or your insides to other people's outsides, you have no idea what is going on with them. You have no idea. And, um... Jezebel, I hope you. I hope you're you're getting the hope you the the help you need and you deserve. Um, sending you some love. This was filled out by Sarah and about her depression. She writes, uh, and it's a postpartum depression. She writes, "I'm afraid my baby is going to start noticing when I leave the room, so I should kill myself before he knows how to miss me." And snapshot from her life, it's really hard in the mornings when I go into his room to get him and he gives me the biggest grin and I don't feel anything but self-loathing for not melting at that smile. Oh, that must be, that must be so fucking hard to be cut off from that emotion. And that's, that's the motherfucker about depression, man. I hate feeling dead inside. Makes you feel like an alien. Um... This is an awfulsome moment filled out by the furiously happy cunt. You guys are the best. 
Sitting at a stoplight, listening to you have a tender moment on your podcast, even getting a little choked up as you were reading a survey. I'm also getting a little choked up, but also laughing at the truck in front of me that has a huge sticker in graffiti-style lettering that reads, Time for Titties and Kitties. This is uh, filled out by Faded Rose, who writes about being an abuser. She writes, I hacked into my therapist iCloud account, and now I can see her photos and the places she goes. I'm trying to stop looking at it because I know it's private, and I hate myself for it. And then a snapshot from her life. I often have intense flashbacks while in my therapist's room. I just get quiet and shaky until it passes. When at home, I crawl into a ball and cry as hard as I can. Thank you for sharing that. And um, boy, um, I, I don't know if I have any advice on how to stop uh, hacking into your therapist's iCloud account because um, you'd have to open up to your therapist um, about that. And um, I would imagine they would probably stop seeing you as a client. Maybe not. I don't know. But... Um, Obviously, you're feeling a lot of stuff that's really overwhelming, and um, I feel for you. Giving you a hug, an internet hug. This is uh, filled out by Thornnet Body Fence, and she writes about her anxiety. Like my heart is staging a mutiny. Turn the cameras in, the cannons inward. My mind is sinking the ship. And a snapshot from her life. I have generalized anxiety about my future and often feel like by my age, I should have life figured out by now. I get a head-spinning feeling and begin to frantically search for a reason for my anxiety. Often I latch it onto my boyfriend and decide he doesn't love or want me and that our future is dismal and he should just break up with me now and find someone he actually likes. The poor guy tells me I'm great all the time, but it's like I'm a sieve and all his love just runs out the bottom. I push, poke, and prod him, trying to locate a reason for my anxiety. Then I wind up realizing I've once again put my shit on him and see him almost visually recoiling from my insecurity and crazy-making verbal diarrhea. Guess what? He does love me, but insecurity and picking fights gets pretty exhausting and old, and he can't help but say, I don't want to engage in this kind of talk anymore. And so I complete the loop by feeling like an ass, feeling incapable, unlovable, and like I'm too much work for anyone to cope with. And I think she says that she is going to a codependence. Uh, yeah, she does. She's going to a codependence uh, support group. Just keep pouring your work into that. Just keep giving that your best effort. And uh, maybe even a, I don't know. I don't know if it, is, there's a love addiction there or it's just uh, an anxiety. I don't know. I don't know, but um, you got a push. Uh, patient uh, boyfriend this is uh this is our final one this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself lonely mcraisin excuse me and she writes four months ago i took a very difficult step and in the midst of a horrible panic attack i called up a crisis hotline the man on the line was incredibly kind and empathetic and provided me with a number to call where i could find some free walk-in counseling nearby I didn't even know that stuff existed. 
The very next week, I took another very difficult step and called the place to get details about the counseling. I had to sit an hour and a half in the parking lot before I even went inside. My head was spinning with thoughts of how much I'm such a drama queen, how I'm wasting my life and not getting anywhere. But I went in, one foot in front of the other, and I saw someone, an incredible and compassionate person who made me feel at ease. And I opened up all the gashes and unhealed wounds of my life. Unfortunately, after three months, she left for another job, for another job and I was left without I had trouble coming to terms with her leaving, and in my anger, I thought I would stop attending any more walk-in sessions. And yet, somehow, I found the strength to push away my reluctance and take the risk of someone new. And again, it was so worth it. The new person was different, but I still spoke just as candidly, explained the gist of my situation, and by the end of the session, I was in an amazing mood, and I cried on the drive home. Talking to this woman was the equivalent of a warm hug on a cold winter's day. I felt so incredibly safe talking to her. I only wish that I could have had parents that made me feel safe like that. This place also referred me to a career counseling organization adapted specifically to helping those with mental illness. I'd gone through four at that point, and each had eventually given up on helping me because of my mood problems. This organization, on the other hand, is amazing, open and non-judgmental willing to offer any support possible, and they ended up even referring me to a support group that meets locally. I went to that support group last night. It's a small group of people, but it's such a huge thing for me. These people understood. They didn't judge. I spent most of the group time joking about all the stupid and silly things that mental illness has pushed me into. I talked about things like my boyfriend having borderline personality or the fact that I overeat all the time or how my relationships with my relationship with my parents is drier than the Sahara Desert. I've never had that kind of support in my life and I've never told anyone about those things face to face. No one in my life knows about it. When I drove home from the meeting, I felt like a ton of bricks had just been lifted from my shoulders and I fell asleep very quickly. Slept nearly 11 hours. And this morning, I saw my career counselor, and I told her about my home environment, about how I was badly physically assaulted two and a half years ago by a family member, and I told her how much I dissociate after my neglectful childhood, and I went deep. I never go that deep. I never plan to let myself be that vulnerable. It just happened. A random stranger I barely know, and I told her one of my darkest secrets, and I didn't even realize what effect, what effect it would have on me. I've cried several times today, cathartic tears, tears of letting go. I came home and I felt so worthy, like I deserved to feel good. I kept having these thoughts of, I deserve to eat a nutritious meal. I am worth the effort. I am worthy of a clean living space. I am worthy of taking all my multivitamins. I am worthy of a pleasant, clean, and productive environment. I went to clean my dishes in the kitchen sink and ended up cleaning everything to a sparkle because I deserve to enjoy a clean kitchen. I don't know how long it will last, but all these difficult steps I've taken have changed my brain chemistry more in four months than I've managed in years. I'm not alone. I'm starting to feel more connected to the world than ever. I've developed a real love for music, not just as a trigger of memories, but as an experience. Every drum beat, every key of a piano, every guitar string sound. Music has brought me back feeling into my body. 
Depression and all my dysfunctional coping habits and defenses are no longer the monster in my head, not the enemy, but rather a torn up, ratty, dirty blanket that my very young self used to prevent the unyielding, scary outside world from painfully engulfing me. It's now becoming safer to come outside. I survived the apocalypse of my childhood and young adult life, and I'm strong, and I am loved, and I am worthy. That right there is a motherfucker. How do you not end on that? Thank you for that. Man, sometimes you guys just take the the wind out of me. I say it all the time, but I am so lucky to have stumbled into this thing, this community that we're building together. And um, I get such, you know, I just had a great fucking day today. I think the Wellbutrin that my psychiatrist has added back in um, is really helping me. But, you know, more than that, it's the, the connection I'm getting in my support groups and with my friends and you know, um, working on intimacy with my wife. I think all of those things um, just, um, I just feel so deeply connected. And yeah, a lot of my issues are still there, but they just don't, like like her survey, they just don't feel as overwhelming anymore. And they're, I just had a really joyful, positive day. And um I, I wish I wish that for for all of you. Um, if you're out there and, and and you're struggling and this all of this seems like just you know smoke and mirrors, happy horse shit. It's really not. It's really not. Um, human connection is the most important important thing. I think that um, we have in our lives because I've had stuff, you know, I've had, when I was doing TV, I had money and I, you know, I was, my face was in People Magazine and TV Guide and none of that shit ever filled the hole, none of it, but laughter at a support group, helping somebody who's new or being helped by somebody that is more experienced than me, uh, that is the stuff fills that hole for me and so I wish that for you and if you're afraid to do it you know maybe start by joining the forum posting about how you're feeling maybe check out our sponsor goodtherapy.org and and find a a therapist near you and just start talking Um, I'm glad I did because I sure as fuck wouldn't be here if I didn't I shudder to think what my life would be like if I were still alive if I hadn't gotten help and uh, just never forget that you're not alone. Never, never forget that because it's so easy to think we are. And uh, now I'm starting to bore myself. So uh, I'm going to tell myself to go fuck myself. Paul, go fuck yourself. Wow, that was uh, was a little unnecessary, Paul. Now I'm hating this bit. So I'm really going to tell myself to go fuck myself. And you're still listening, so I wouldn't feel that great about yourself if I were you. Because you're really, you're as, you're as pathetic as I am. 
This whole thing has turned upside down. I'm now going to stop and fight the urge to delete. I bid thee adieu. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.